All right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, guest today, I'm really excited about Tim Urban. Um, Tim is, I think, probably a lot of you already know, uh, writes an amazing blog uh, called Wait But Why. Um, he just wrote a book called What's Our Problem? A Self-Help Book for Societies. We're going to talk about that. And I'm going to steal two different things people said about you because they're better than I could come up with. So one was when you did Derek Thompson's podcast, I loved his line that like, we consider a big picture thinker someone looking at like the world from 30,000 feet and you're like 300,000 feet, right? You're not <laughs> like the plane looking down. You're like, in, you know, the, the, the International Space Station looking down. And then Hugo, you wrote this one, which is he is a big thinker in a world dominated by little thinkers, um, which I think is sort of a, even though you don't say that about yourself in the book, is I think the little thinker part clearly annoys you, right? <laughs> and, and, and you get at in the book. Um, so thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so we'll start with a basic question, which is, you know, as, as you've talked about before, there's the whole kind of Steven Pinker theory that the world is just statistically actually much better than it's ever been by a tremendous amount. And yet, anecdotally, it feels worse in many ways than it ever has. Um, where does that cognitive dissonance come from? Come from? Well, I mean, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a long tradition of... Um, media making people think that things are getting worse because not because the media is trying to do something bad. Uh, they're just a for, they're for profit ventures and, uh, they want attention is what they make profit off of. And, um, you're going to get more attention with negative news. That's just an, you know, human right. nature. Right. That's why the internet's so fucking toxic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So open up, you know, sometimes I open up, you know, just to see what's what, what's being said, you know, CNN.com. And you'll see, you know, I don't know, 80 plus percent, maybe 90 plus percent, like death, negativity, um, conflict, um, you know, just just drama in general. Uh, and there's all kind of, you know, there's all this positive stuff happening, both positive trends, like, you know, like Pinker talks about. Yeah. And also just positive anecdotes, positive stories. A lot of what's in the news are anecdotes. And uh, you'll never see the positive ones. So, um, so for that reason, of course, since the media is informing us on the world, um, we end up um, feeling like the sky is cloudy, and when it's often bright blue, and uh, that that you know that compounds, and then people it becomes kind of an ethos that things are bad, and that you know the the, the past was better, or that the future should be better than today. So you, you talk a lot in the book about kind of existential risks that we face. And by the way, I should just say like, because I'm just plugging that people should not buy your book. Um, it is written in a way that is very fun to read. It is very conversational. It feels like, you know, when I'm reading it, that I'm talking to you now that I actually uh, am talking to you. I'll have this nice picture of you in my head when I, you know, yeah. read, read more of it. So, um, to me, there are like four existential risks. I'm curious sort of whether you agree and how you would rank them, right? There is nuclear war. There is a COVID-like pandemic, but 100 times more deadly, right? Um, there's climate change. And then there is some version of AI taking over everything. Which of those do you worry about? Um, AI is the scariest one okay. because for a couple of reasons. Um AI could turn into, in you know, the worst scenarios, into a uh, an, a dictator, 
over all of us. It yep. could it could be play God to all of us. Um, none of the other things you mentioned are going to do that, right? There's just the 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 magnitude of what AI could become, both good and bad, is just so much bigger than any other thing, both either good or bad, that when you compare it to other existential risks, uh, it's just on a different plane. But there's a second reason, which is that AI also can help people uh, who want to do harm do it. So AI can help people develop nuclear weapons much easier and maybe more powerful uh, kinds of weapons. AI can design that and, and um, so AI in the wrong hands also can enable people to do really bad things. Now it also, of course, can do the opposite. Where AI, uh, if it's if it's uh, you know if it's doing what we wanted to do, could solve climate change for us and things like that. Could come up with solutions that we can't think of. So yeah, how is it? So at least for the the bad intentions, how is it invariably not in the wrong hands? In the sense of you have two options, right? You have private industry in the Western world, which isn't evil, but is motivated by, as you said before about the media, by, by profit, that's their job, or, you know, totalitarian societies, Russia, China, whatever it is, where we just assume that their intentions are, are evil and bad. And so given that, where's the, where's the argument that this is going to work out well? <laughs> well, um, there, you know, you could just, the, the one argument is just looking at the last 100, 200 years, the industrial revolution vastly improved. In, in increase the power of humanity, the technological yeah. power we had to impact the world, to impact each other. Um, and yeah, it, it, has, it had some major problems like nuclear weapons came out of that, or, or, you know, um, uh, climate change came out of that. And so many of the things that we're scared of today, they, they're only possible because of the industrial revolution. Right. On the other hand, I don't, know how, I don't know many people who would trade 2023 for 1723. Um, those people who like they reenact battles and stuff. They, yeah, they exactly. Maybe some that. of those people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and granted, it would be interesting to spend like a couple of days in 1723, maybe even a year. I was going to say a couple of days sounds long to me. Yeah, but like, I wouldn't want to go there permanently. Um, and so, if you think along those lines, and this is you know that's that's also a theme in history that um, that that you know technological progress creates both good and bad, and yet people probably most of the time don't want to go back, which. This is another way of saying it's probably a net positive, probably a pretty big net positive. So the idea here is maybe AI doesn't turn into a sentient, super intelligent dictator. We don't really know yet if it can do that. Um, and maybe instead it, uh, it is just, it, it gives us unbelievable tools, uh, powerful tools to do amazing things with. And some people will do really bad things with them and some people do good things, kind of like the industrial revolution. And in 200 years, people, or maybe in 50 years, people living in a magical AI world might say the same thing. Oh, yeah, there's been disasters that people in 2023 couldn't even conceive of and risks that they couldn't. But none of us want to go back to 2023. And I can see that. Right. So, right. It's, it's like we're in this race to save ourselves before we destroy ourselves, right? Like with climate change, it seems to me that the only real scalable solution is going to be some sort of carbon capture technology that can actually remove you know, uh, carbon from the atmosphere as opposed to just like getting everyone to recycle the plastic bottles or whatever else it is. Um, kind of same thing here too. So if now that at least there's discussion about how to regulate AI, if Biden called you, um, assuming he knows what AI is, and yeah. said, okay, Tim, how should I be thinking about this? What would you tell him given your concerns? <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I wouldn't want to be in charge of that phone call um, because 
there's just, it's really tough because, I mean, you don't want no regulation. This is right. the ultimate thing that regulation is supposed to be for, to protect the public interest and, and to, you know, protect public safety. And this is, the, you know, the ultimate risk. But what are you going to exactly do? You can't shut down all development. Um, if you somehow could, you can only shut it down in your country. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, I maybe would try to... Um, do I, I if if what I would want Biden to do before making any kind of rules or regulations is put a lot of investment into just you know grants for people who are thinking about this and um, you know these these kind of I would, where I would want to um, work with universities and think tanks and try to basically like have a Manhattan Project type thing where the end goal was not a, a bomb but a, a, some kind of plan. Um, I don't think I or Biden or really anyone else today is quite uh, capable of, of, of describing a good plan. And so, but what, what was the Manhattan Project? It was the best minds all got together in a very unusual way and rapid fire solved a major problem out of desperation, out of existential desperation. I mean, arguably the COVID vaccine is a version of that too, yeah. right? Right. We just, we, we think about how many, you know, years or decades certain things like probably MR, MNR, mRNA technology. I always screw that up. Too. Yeah. <laughs> um, probably, you know, a lot of different things that we don't even quite understand yet move, you know, leapt forward. Right. I mean, there's this at least view that maybe MR, mRNA can become a cancer vaccine. And then you get to the question of like, okay, let's say that that's true and you can eliminate 20 major kinds of cancers, you know, was COVID worth it? Maybe yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, even like you know, this it's obviously hard to to weigh things, but you could even look at like World War II was basically the worst thing ever, right? It was like seventy million people died. On the other hand, um, it, it's hard to find technology we're using today that wasn't advanced in in World War II, right. um, and uh, so it, it's it's um, you know, of course, the other example from the post war era was. Um, the moon landing. So the, if there weren't some weird geopolitical thing going on, which was the Cold War in this case, and a very specific time in the Cold War where it felt critical to do this, there's no way any president was going to be able to get the, you know, even it would be political suicide to even mention we should use 4.5% of the budget on this kind of novelty task, this, 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 this adventure, Space which force. yeah, it's cool, right. but like, it's the amount of programs that had to be cut for that. I mean, that's tons of money, 4.5% of the budget. Today, it's you know under half a percent is used right. on space. So if, if it weren't for the Cold War, we would still have not gone to the moon. And rocket technology would be way behind where it is. So the point is that something like AI alignment, you know, could naturally be on a path to take 100 years to really start to, or we can get into moon landing or Manhattan Project mode uh, and try to, in the next five years, you know, five, four or five, six years, like, you know, do 50 years of advancement. Yeah. So, it, you know, you talk in the book about kind of primitive <clears throat> thinking and higher thinking, and it feels like we are certainly living in a moment where politics is controlled basically by primitive thinking. Um, do you think that's just always been the case, but at certain situations, whether it's World War II or the Cold War or even COVID, it just, we are forced to change the way we think and behave? Or do you think that we have somehow regressed over the last 75 years? I think it, it ebbs and flows. Like I think you've got um, periods where people are united. 
people kind of acting like grownups, willing to compromise, um, and you know, uh, open to disagreement about things. And 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 so there are there are lots of periods of American history when you see kind of a vibe like that going on. And then there are these other. It's kind of it, it's you know there are um, there are graphs you can look at that show just like things like polarization of Congress or feelings of negativity to the other party or things like that. And you see it's a wave. It waves comes in you know ebbs and flows. So you've got like the 1890s was one of these periods where it was just rampant political tribalism and the newspapers were all like right. making up. Right. That's the best argument to justify today is how bad it was then, right? It was yeah. really bad then. It was, um, and, and then it was much better for a while. And then after the new deal, things start to get, um, you know, testy in that era. And then you've got, um, you know, the sixties was kind of testy right after the, right after the founding of the country, um, <clears throat> right after George Washington left office, you know, really tribal political time. Um, and then, and then today, and, you know, so I always read about the Red Scare, heard about it and was thinking like, man, that is so weird that that was only, you know, whatever it was, 50, 60, 70 years ago, uh, given that it sounds like so, um, like barbaric kind of how people were acting and like getting people fired for having the wrong politics. And then here we are right. in something that absolutely is the same kind of thing. Going yeah. On, on both sides of the aisle. Oh yeah. Right. So l let me give you my thesis, this is the thing that I'm working at, uh, on at my foundation that um, would love your advice on to do. So basically, I, I spent the first 15 years of my career working in government and politics before I got into tech and VC and worked in city government, state government, federal government, legislative branch, executive branch. I've kind of seen it from every angle. And my main takeaway was every policy output is the result of a political input. Every politician makes every decision solely based on re-election and nothing else. They have a hole in their psyche that can only be filled by the affirmation and validation that comes with holding office. And they are incredibly rational, but only towards solving for this one very specific thing. And so if you want them to do the right thing, you, the right thing in your view has to line up with the right thing politically for them, or they're just not going to do it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and my gut is this was probably true in the Greek Senate and the Roman Senate. And this is sort of human nature of these types of people. Um, but the good news is, by not believing in anything, you can actually move them, right? So my pivot of the tech was I ran the campaigns to legalize Uber and ride sharing. And the way that we beat the taxi industry is we were able to get a couple of million of our customers to advocate for us politically through the app, um, emailing, texting, tweeting, whatever it was, to tell whoever the relevant elected officials were in that jurisdiction, let this thing stay. And it worked. We won everywhere, right? And so... The thesis I have is that most people are too busy or apathetic or whatever it is to not take their kid to school on a random Tuesday to vote in the city council primary. They're just not going to do it, right? People who think they're regular voters mean that people are for precedent. Um, but if you could vote on your phone as opposed to voting, having to go somewhere, um, turnout goes from an average of, say, 12%, which is sort of the average primary turnout right now, and because of gerrymandering, only the primary really ever matters, to 35%, 40%. And just by math, that shifts you into the view of the majority more. And therefore, if the only goal for a politician is to make the prime regular primary voters happy so that she or he can get reelected in the next primary, um, they move to the middle just to accommodate that. One, what do you think of that logic? And two, given that you've got this 250,000-year view of human history, what should I do to sort of actually bring this forward. Yeah. So, I mean, what you're talking about is players and a game. Yeah. 
And it's not just politicians, you know, most humans um, will are, are playing some game and they are, and they're rational about it. Um, and I think that's, it is the right focus to be like, you know, rather than scold people for their behavior, um, except that behavior is going to funnel itself into the optimal rational game playing mode and talk about the game. And so, yeah, you know, people, you know, gerrymandering is, you know, it's, it's been framed as like, oh, this is like evil Republicans doing this thing, but it's really, it's really more like, first of all, both parties have been doing a lot of it and they've been doing it partially, um, in cahoots with each other. So if, if there's two purple oh, districts. Yeah, for sure. I, look, I was the deputy governor of Illinois and okay, so we you, were Democrats, yeah. but like, yeah, we all fucking conspired together on the maps, right? The right. maps were, how do we all stay in power? Well, and also if there's two purple districts, uh, and you can talk to the other party and say, Hey, let's redraw the lines. We end up with a red and a blue. Yeah. Neither of us have to spend any money in those two districts. If there's purple districts are expensive yep. because you have to try to keep the seat for your color. It's automatically now we can just it's accept we're each going to have one of these two seats and now we can just both focus elsewhere because you have limited money, limited time. Um, and so there's been a lot of that. Uh, and I, and I've talked to Congress people who one was telling me that he's, and this is, I think a very common story that he is a, a, a moderate Democrat and that he does not like political tribalism and he prefers nuance and he, to talk about real issues and that that used to be it but every single one of them claims to be i know of course all i'm sure all 530 even, even aoc or you know matt gates would claim that if you they, get them alone they yeah say, oh i just want to get stuff done and we should all be able to work together right but anyway keep going. sure yeah. but but so 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 if some of them are bullshitting and yeah. then some of them are not yeah but what's happening is the ones who are not are um uh he basically said that now that my district is bright blue, no longer purple. It's just such an obvious thing. Once you realize there's no general election anymore, or there, there, it's, a, it's a, a, a irrelevant. Yeah. So the voters are not incentivized to elect someone who can win over the center. Because that's if it's a general election, you better, you can't elect someone that's too polarizing. You have to elect someone that can kind of appeal to the other side. So you end up trying to elect reasonably centrist candidates, or at least you know candidates that, that have a, a broad appeal. And as soon as you get rid of that general election, it just becomes now who's the brightest, most loyal blue of the bunch. And it, it becomes a kind of like, um, but yeah. because the window of people who actually show up to vote in that primary is pretty small. So they are the true believers on either side. Real political people. Yeah. They are the yeah. most left wing nuts, right wing nuts, totally accurate on both sides of it. Um, I guess the thesis or the question would be if, all of a sudden triple that number of people were voting in the primary, um, do they then go back to that sort of who can work with everyone? Because as a result, 36% is definitionally more centrist than 12%, right? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's it definitely would help. I mean, the presidential elections, you know, you, you, know, you, you obviously have some var variability there, but it's not surprising that someone like Biden is the one who emerged from the, you know, the the Democratic candidates. I, 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 that's that's kind of what often happens because it's the one non-gerrymandered district in this country, right? Right. Exactly. Well, and, and Senate, races, yeah, some too, Senate right? seats, maybe fifteen out of the hundred, something. Right. Like that. But here's how you know there aren't many: the fact that most Republicans did not vote after January sixth to impeach Trump mm -hmm. shows you that there are not very many competitive actual Senate seats outside of the primary, mm -hmm. right? 
because definitionally it was both insane. And I'm, I'm an independent. I kind of hate both parties. But nonetheless, politically, it was insane not to put the knife in this guy when you could, right? Yeah. Have them come back, except for the fact that if you're worried about your next primary. Right. And and so this 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 concept of, you know, we could, is, I think there really is a good use of brain power to analyze the game and 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 then and then you can I think you know come up with solutions. I, I I've also focused a lot on kind of what's going on in, in our culture. Um, you know we have a culture war going on, right? What is that? A culture war is when um, you know political tribalism kind of you know flares up to the point where it kind of subsumes everything for a while. Um, and again, I can imagine that like the early fifties might have felt this way during the Red Scare. Um, and that's a game too. You know, in the end, we are all insecure social beings who want to be liked. We want to be cool. We want to be part of the cool kids. We want to be part of the popular crowd. We don't want to be ostracized or publicly shamed. We don't want people talking shit about us behind our back. We are all human. That is very human. So there's this, the, the, if you think about what is culture, culture is the unwritten rules of how we do things here. And what is, what, what is, what kind of behaviors are what the cool kids do and what's not cool to, to, to do. And whatever those settings are, are, is going to drive a ton of human behavior. And so right now, and maybe it's the advent of social media, maybe we're in kind of a wild west period with the social etiquette on social media before we eventually figure out how to be, you know, kind humans again. But either way, it, it, it at least for a, a long time, you know, the last five, 10 years, it has become very cool, a way to gain status to shame people on social media and to be really hyper tribal political to, to right. write zinger tweets about the other side that will get you a lot of attention and, and love and status. And, and it's just like the politicians. These people are rational in the end and they, they want those things. Yeah, they, need, they need validation affirmation too. Exactly. And if we, if, if things turned and it became like, wow, you, why are you writing? Like, why are you, you're being politically tribal. That's like so lame. That's like a lame old person thing or like, or that's just what, like, that's bigotry. If, we, if that started to seem like real bigotry to us, watch how quickly all, you know, 95% of the people doing it today quickly stop because there are some people with a lot of integrity who will always kind of right. behave in a way that that really they, they that fits with their principles. There's a much bigger group of people. No. They, they will do whatever is popular. Right, but well, 95% of what we're seeing on Twitter is performative, right? Yeah. Just like the only good news about politicians only believing in their own political future and nothing else is they're very adaptable, right? You know, you'll have some hardcore ideologues on both sides that might get swept out if, if primary turnout goes from 12 to 42. But most of them are like, all right, now I need to be more centrist, work with the other side, get something done on climate change, get something done on education, whatever it is, they'll do that, right? By the way, you could say you apply the same concept to the media. In the 60s, there were three media you know, channels, TV channels, ABC, NBC, CBS. And they, it's not that the people, they were better people than the people running media today. They were just, the game they were playing was broadcasting to the whole country. Yep. And if one of them starts getting a reputation for being right biased or left biased, they're going to lose a ton of viewers while the other ones are going to keep the whole, you know, representation of the whole country. They just lost half of their, right. So the, the, and, and if same thing, if one of them gets a reputation for being wrong a lot, for being inaccurate, they're going to get, become a the butt of jokes, and they're going to lose viewers. So the game was set up to incentivize them to be accurate and neutral, and at least as close as possible. Right. Uh, today, 
the game is totally different, right? You have because of the internet and cable TV, you know, I think, you know, started with, you know, Rush Limbaugh and, and then Fox News and, um, and, and then a lot of other things followed where people started to realize that you actually could make a lot more money today catering, accepting, screw the other half of the country. We're yeah. not even going to try to get them. And we're just going to really dig in. And and instead of telling people who will win the election, who's who's likely to win, which is what they used to do, we're going to start telling people who ought to win. We're going to start saying, you know, I, I remember seeing Ted Koppel come to um, my college to do a talk in, in 2004. And the interviewer asked him, you know, so what, what are your political leanings? And everyone laughed because everyone knew he wasn't going to say anything. Of course, that was a big secret. You know, the anchors would never talk about that. Today, right. every anchor, they're extremely openly partisan. Well, right. That's the big look. So, yeah, Fox News, obviously, and, you know, Ailes and Murdoch figured out was both brilliant and, and terrible at the same time. But I would say the New York Times is really no different, right? No, yeah. I mean, I, so, so I will give, I will give like a, a, a slight difference in that the New York Times, I will say at least, um, they do publish conservative op-eds sometimes. They do, on occasion, publish a criticism of wokeness. And, yeah, and although when, when Tom Cotton wrote, oh, of course. they lost half their editorial. I have a whole section of my book about how awful that was. I think the yeah. New York Times has has really, um, you, you, they, they, they have, uh, uh, you, you've seen decay of their kind of professionalism and their, and their neutrality and absolutely. And, and today, you know, I, uh, everything I read with the New York Times has anything to do with politics or especially anything to do with like, you know, social justice topics. I just take it with a huge grain of salt, assuming that uh, this is... I don't even read it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, 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 this this is, is, is not... I don't really know if there's any information here. Right. I would just say that there's a little difference between the... There's So what the, the, what the left has is lots and lots of media brands, big the biggest media brands, almost all of them, uh, lean to the left. And so there's a lot of them, and and some of them at least... Are a little have a little bit of diversity of viewpoint. Yeah, the right is much more, and I think this is a reaction. I think that the people on the right really felt like all the media was left biased, which they were, and so it was easy for something like Fox News to really capture everyone. And then, and you don't see much diversity of viewpoint. Like Breitbart never publishes, you know, uh, so, so, you know, a, a, a left wing someone right. who's defending Elizabeth Warren or something. You're never going to see that, right? But you, you might, you, but you actually might see, you know, some something on the New York Times. So, right. Yeah. Well, right. It's, it's you write about them with confirmation bias, right? I of mean, course. Ultimately, people now just see more mm -hmm. want to be told that what they think. By the way, especially their grievances, right? And so the Fox News one, you know, here in the bubble of New York City, we like to think about sort of, oh yeah, the you know, laid off factory worker in Indiana who's just angry and, and Trump's nationalism appeals to him, but. You know, I would argue that the New York Times has the same thing, but it's like for the 16th percent, right? In that, like, you're this, I don't know, anywhere from call it the, the 8th to the 25th percent, you're the ones that really hate the 1%. Mm -hmm. The 70% doesn't hate the 1%. No. It's just so removed from their lives. It's not, but you were in the ball game to be the 1%, but you didn't make partner at your consulting firm, your law firm, whatever, your investment bank, whatever it was. And all of a sudden now you're in the, Seventh percent, so the one percent, you have two ways to look at this. It could be way one, yeah, I wasn't good enough, or they're all corrupt and evil, and I got fucked, right. and I'm going to be as angry and self righteous as possible about it. And the Times, I think, has brilliantly, and, and other other left wing media too, um, played into that and say, okay, we're going to get justice for you, right? We are going to take your aggrievement and we are going to publicize it and broadcast it and confirm it every single day, and you will feel better about yourselves because the narrative that you tell yourselves is now reconfirmed on a constant basis in the New York Times. It's a hell of a business model. 
it's like it's like feeding people emotional junk food. It's like giving people an emotional cookie that is not actually good for them. Uh, it doesn't make them actually a happier, more productive, more successful person. It just makes them feel better about um, their worldview in that day. And I think a lot of this is just you know emotional manipulation. I also would add to that group. I think a lot of people who are very combo of both very privileged and also very left and resentful of the, quote you know the rich. Yeah. are people who went to all the top schools and they grew up, you know, with money and they went to all the things and they think of themselves as, you know, I'm one of the people who, you know, who is one of the the most talented people. And then they went to, but then they majored in, you know, some uh, humanities and they went into, um, they went into uh, some kind of intellectual pursuit. Maybe they're, maybe they're professor, maybe they're journalism, but there's a lot of these people who, who kind of grew up with these very high expectations and then they, um, and and then but they and and they, and they're friends with a lot of people who have a lot more than they do because they're really enmeshed in that social world. Yeah. And so they they feel a lot of comparison and they feel a lot of envy and a lot of aggrievement um, versus someone who grew up you know with their their parents worked in a factory and they, um, you know and and they're just they're just trying to rise up and get into the middle class like they're not this isn't if anything they they look at rich people and they say awesome you know it's America yeah, yeah America aspirational yeah exactly I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna live the American dream myself yeah so normative change right it's it seems like I mean one of the big kind of points of your book is effectively if if humanity is roughly two hundred fifty thousand years old and you're giving basically in a two hundred and fifty page book every every page is a thousand years. Like ninety nine percent of the interesting stuff um, has happened on the last page, right? I mean, you make the point. Like, well, so no, so I, I say it is it's a thousand page book. A thousand, right, right, right. Where right, each right, page right. is two hundred and fifty years, right, right. which just makes an even stronger point, which is that still, it's still the on the page. last page. So I mean, and and the reason it's a thousand pages is you know human, you know, the estimates are that somewhere between two hundred and three hundred thousand years ago, you'd start to see people that are anatomically identical to us, right. and then. 50,000 years ago. So, you know, people who started to be behaviorally uh, modern, behavioral identity. So yeah. that is a lot of millennia of people just like us with emotions like ours, living in communities and feeling a lot of the feelings we feel. And it was in the last quarter millennia that basically the entire modern world just sp sprung up. Um, if you were reading this 1,000-page book, you, you, the last page alone would be the first time we had more than a billion people on earth. And suddenly by the end of the page, there's eight. Yeah. The last page is that, you know, you only had horse riding and sailboats until the last page. And suddenly they're going to the space station, oh, right? Course, yeah. So you can go on communication. You know, they only had letter writing and stuff. The last page, we have FaceTime and, and, and of course, you know, existential threats. We never had those before. Real, now we have nukes and we have the internet now. You can just go on and on and on. And so the, re the reason I like this metaphor is because I think – you know, I think we all have a thought at some point, like, wow, we live in such crazy times. Like, we, And then we have a thought that overrides that, which is, no, everyone thinks their time is special. This is what everyone feels like. It don't, it don't be naive. And actually, the time when, and that's usually wise, right. but except when you happen to actually be, be living in, in an time. anomaly, now yeah. you're going to have to override the override. And so I use this to show that, like, if, if someone in, in page, you know, 863 of the Thousand Page Book thought this, yeah, they'd be being naive. But someone today is actually like like every single metric is like nothing looks normal and 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 if you're reading the book you're like oh this is the climax what's going to happen to this species as you turn the page, 
to our future, to our next 50, 100 years. Right. And look, I mean, from an evolutionary standpoint, we're not that different than we were 200,000 no. years ago. But from a behavioral normative standpoint, obviously, we're radically different. Um, what are the norms that right now, kind of to your point earlier, where you said, like, look back for years, say, oh, I'd never really want to live in 2023. And even though those bad things happened in the intervening period, like, what are norms that we hold today that you think in 50 years or 500 years, we will like not be able to believe that we did those things? I mean, I think one that I think is not an original thought, a lot of people would say this is, um, I think we will uh, be horrified that we had like factory farming. Yeah. Um, you know, it's in all of us to suddenly be horrified by this because think about how people treat, think about dogs, right? If someone had, if, if it came out, look at what Michael Vick, right? If it, if it yeah. came out that there was, and that's a fraction of what pigs are dealing with. I mean, imagine if it came out that there was a factory with hundreds of dogs packed in, they couldn't breathe, they couldn't move, um, they, they, and then they, they, they got slaughtered and baby puppies were, were, were being raised right. in like tiny spaces, whatever. Totally. Uh, uh, just a quick, a friend of mine was a homicide prosecutor in LA, the DA's office, and he said, the easiest conviction to get was dog abuse. Yeah. Much easier than murder. Exactly. Yeah. Meanwhile, <laughs> pigs are just as smart as dogs and just as lovable if you actually hang, hang out with a pig and they're being treated like, you know, like, like, like plants. So I think that that's kind of an obvious one. Yeah, and, sure. and it just feels like once that, it's one of those things that like is a tipping point. Once it turns, it'll suddenly turn and, and, and people won't believe that, you know. Okay, I think another one is... Um, and by the way, I don't think that people are not going to eat meat. I think there's going to be incredible lab-grown meat. Uh, that's just good. It's already starting. And it's going to, you know, again, our, our generation will be like, ew, lab-grown meat. And then f future, it'll seem gross to actually eat real animals. Of course, you only eat lab-grown meat. Anyway, another one um, that, um, that uh, wait, what, what was I just going to say? The, the, the norms that we hold today that we'll be horrified by at yeah. some, some point in the future. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Okay, so I, I think um, that people in the future... I think like our grandkids will just be amazed by how like um, how natural every like we lived in a certain way, and in that like they'll be like, wait, women got pregnant like animals, and be like, yeah, yeah, human women used to get pregnant like animals, like that's how kids were, and then you just had a baby and you just hoped it was a good baby because you didn't like there was no genetic engineering, no like you know making sure the genes are right, and it's like yeah, yeah, we used to just like people would actually just have sex for reproductive purposes. And then the woman would get pregnant and then birth the baby. And then whatever you got, you got. I think that's going to seem like really old school uh, down the road. Because again, once you come out of that, it just see, it seems like it'll, of course, there'll be a huge, it'll be controversial for a while. There'll be a whole generation that says, you know, that that's evil and bad. Just like there was a generation that said that you know, organ transplants was like Frankenstein. and was like playing God and that's gross. And now, of course, we all love that there's organ transplants. So um, I think we'll get there. And I, I um, you know, um, I, I hope, and I hope this is sooner rather than later, that people will, in not too many years, look back on how people behaved on like Twitter today. Yep. And they, it'll, they'll say the same thing I used to say about the Red Scare, which is, wow, that's only a few decades ago. Like, man. And people will say, wow, like, look, look at these grownups acting like middle school kids. Like, famous, famous grownups are like, and it'll just, it'll just be like, it'll just be really uncool to act like yeah. that. Well, or, or if they just repealed section 230, I think you get to that place a little fucking faster. Uh, but that's a whole separate thing. <laughs> All right. So last question, I want to change topic a little bit. You wrote, and this probably when I was seven, eight years ago, this, like how, how many words was your Elon Musk thing? 
Total 95,000 words. Yeah, and yeah. that's before the 40,000 word Neuralink post. Right. So, right. So I remember re reading that. In fact, I was flying to San Francisco to meet with him about some Tesla stuff. And someone sent to me and said, read this before you meet with him. And it was like the perfect flight out there. Um, but a lot's happened since then, right? Good and bad. He's become in some ways, maybe the most interesting person in the world. Um, has your view of him changed? Um, no. Look, I mean, when I wrote the fourth post in my series back then was about how his secret sauce is that he reasons from first principles really, really well. And that means you, you know, that, you know, because if if you're in 50,000 BC, uh, which is when we're all programmed to live, um, conventional wisdom is wise. Like it's it's the accumulation of, you know, generations of trial and error. So someone tells you not to eat that berry, you shouldn't eat it because it's Definitely someone learned that the hard way. Um, and that's because every generation lived on the same piece of land doing the same kind of activities again and again and again. So we're all programmed to trust conventional. When everyone thinks something, you, you should probably believe it. Right. When the world is changing, again, this is, a, this is page 1000 anomal, anomalous stuff. When the world is changing so, so quickly um, and, uh, and you just don't... Uh, you, 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 and you, you don't even know what your, you know, people don't know what their kids are even their, their technology even is. And grandparents and grandchildren really have a gap now. And like my grandmother gives me advice, but she's became wise for a world that's not here anymore. She, right. you know, she says, you know, go to law school and secure security, security, security. And I'm thinking, oh, it's, it's not the great depression. You know, it's a different time. Um, so the point is conventional wisdom in general, um, not only goes bad over generations, I mean, sometimes conventionalism five years ago is no longer applies, you know, in business and other investing yeah. and other things. So anyway, what you want, the skill, the key skill you want in a time like this is to be able to reason from first principles, which says, I'm going to just independently reason. I'm going to treat in, you know, raw observations and axioms that I can find like puzzle pieces. I'm going to use those to build a puzzle that is a conclusion and so often, conventional wisdom will conflict with my conclusion. Yeah. So in Elon's case, you know, the, the one conclusion was um, a like billionaires shouldn't start a or you know rich guys shouldn't start a rocket company because a lot of people have done it and they've all failed. So people just hear something like that. And a lot of people have tried this. No one succeeded. There's got to be a good reason for that, and they just give up. He doesn't think that way. He thinks, well, uh, it seems like it's important, and there's a decent chance of success. And then people start to say, well, okay, but if you do that, you know, you, there's no way to land a rocket, which is one of their goals. We have to land rockets, make them reusable. Soviet Union would have done it. The U NASA would have done this. You think you're going to be better than Soviet? Everyone in that situation says, now, obviously, I'm not going to be able to solve this if they couldn't. He did some math on his envelope and said, uh, it looks like we have the, if you, if you, the first principles there are the actual raw materials and how much they weigh and gravity. And he said, I think we can, right? And so he went with it. So that's what I noticed again and again and again with him is that he would do his own reasoning and he would do things his own way and 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 it it often rubbed people the wrong way and it often seemed like a bad idea and sometimes it was a bad idea by the way he's failed on a lot of things in you know along the way do you think the twitter purchase came out of first principles or that came out of sort of ego and insecurity and sort of need for attention. Well, he's a human, so I'm sure he has all the same things that any other human has. But my bigger point here is that um, what a lot of what I see him doing now that gets a negative reaction is doing his own thing, you know, furiously doing his own thing regardless of what 
you're supposed to do. Yep. And that is going to ruffle a lot of feathers along the way. And yep. it's going to also create, you know, you're going to make some mistakes along the way. And you're also going to have some dramatic successes um, if, if, if you just, and most people just don't do that. We're not wired to do that. And so um, I, I don't see this as that different a story as the other ones. It's just um, a different manifestation of the same person and the same story. That's how I see it. Yeah, that's certainly worth it. How do people find your work? Um, Waitbutwhy.com. There you go. Yeah. And the book right now, you got to get it as an e-reader, right? Yeah. Are you coming out in print too? We might. We might. Yeah, I wanted to, it was too timely to wait eight months uh, for, for, for the print backup to happen. But yeah, an e-reader and audiobook. And it works well. Like, yeah, I read it on Kindle. It actually works, works really well. That yeah. Way. Um, did you read the audiobook or did you get someone else? I read it and it was tough, grueling. Right? Yeah. It's a 14-hour audiobook that took me 45 hours in I the could, studio. Yeah, I was, when my first book, I did the audiobook and I was like, oh, I host a podcast. I'm right. so good at this. Oh, it was a fucking disaster. You can't mess up a syllable. No, you have to go back and right. do it again. And I'm a New Yorker, so I can't. I swallow syllables I know, and I, I know. Just, they say things the wrong way. I'm talking too fast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a total mess. Um, all right. Well, look, obviously, I think the listeners know that I could not recommend this more highly. Uh, Tim, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks.